afternoon, everyone. Um, good folk house, that's good. Uh, lots of new faces, some familiar faces as well. My name is Keston Blandon. I'm a psychologist. I specialize in dementias. And I work here at the Centers for Health and Aging. I work primarily in research and program development. Um, and this today is memory loss and brain health. It takes, we have an hour and a half um, to spend together. Depending on the questions um, that you have, this, this takes about an hour or so. Um, so feel free to ask questions. Make sure that you ask questions to, to get be clear on what I'm saying. Um, also, if you have questions that are outside the topics here, you can feel free to ask them. If, if it's too far outside the topic or it's a little bit too complicated, you have a couple of, of options. Afterwards, I'll have time to chat with people if you have specific questions. Um, and in April, we have, uh, so let me just make sure that you two have a, hi there. Hi. So I don't know if you want to sit there or here, or we can get a couple of chairs over there. In April, if you look in our brochure, we have in April a couple of courses um, that are two weeks in a row where we have a social worker from the Alzheimer's Association of Massachusetts in New Hampshire, which is where I used to work. Uh, she's coming up to do uh, courses specifically on caregiving issues, if anyone has questions about that, which will go a little bit further than what I'm doing today. Is that Bernie? It's not Bernie, although it's, not. Um, okay. it's Lisa Greenier, and she's coming from the Bedford office. Uh, but Bernie Seifer is a social worker who works for us, and she's also doing a dementia course this spring as well. So we have we have a few things going on. Um, but if you wanted, if you had questions deeper into the caregiving situation, um, she will be educating on that and answering questions on that in April. So today. We're really going over memory loss and brain health. <laughs> We're going over um, the differences between normal aging and mild cognitive impairment, and then what does a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia mean? We'll go through the differences of Alzheimer's and dementia, um, and we'll go through the warning signs of the symptoms. I'm not going to get far in, further into the disease of how they progress, but what you would be looking for to know the difference. It, and then I'll talk about principles of diagnosis and, and how you get a diagnosis and what that means for someone. And I'll discuss risk factors for Alzheimer's and dementia. And then based on those risk factors, we're gonna talk about lifestyle strategies for brain health. Okay, and so again, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask. Whoops, went too far. Um, so first, let's just start with some of the statistics. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia. I'm gonna explain the difference between those in, in a few moments. Um, in the population that's 65 and older, vast majority of all cases of Alzheimer's disease occur in the population that's 65 and older. Um, and with our aging population, it's, not, it's true of, of many countries, not just our, our country. Um, we have aging populations, and so this is becoming an increasing public health issue. <coughs> 
Um, but right now the prevalence is about 13% and for the, the number of people that are 65 and older in our country, that's about one in eight. We have over five million in our country right now living with Alzheimer's disease. There are younger onset forms of Alzheimer's disease. People can get this in their 30s, 40s, 50s. It's the same disease pathologically in the brain. It just starts earlier. Um, they estimate that of people that have younger onset, that's before 65, that's about um, 300,000, I think they estimate in our country. So not as, not as many, but significant. Um, so by 2030, the estimation is that the population age 65 and older that has the biggest risk is going to double. So by 2050, if we don't have a serious way to delay the onset of this disease or stop the progression of this disease, um, it's estimated that around 15 million people in our country will be living with Alzheimer's. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and I'm sure you've all noticed, as, as I have, it's not just me live, who works in the field, so I notice these things more, but it's become more and more, it's on the nightly news, you see it on you know, TV shows, it's movies. Um, Just so what explains the doubling? The doubling of the population? Is it the doubling of the older population, or is it yeah. the doubling so of the So the baby boomer illness. population? Okay. In 2011, the oldest of the baby boomer population turned 65, right. Right. and that population is 78 million people. Right, so this is why they yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, if you look at, at you know, it, it, the bell curve, <laughs> it swells up with that population. So once that population, um, that, that ba the baby boomers move through that, then we'll, yeah. you know, it'll be better. We'll still have Alzheimer's disease because we're also living longer. Right. And the longer you live, the, the higher the risk as well. So, um, but that's what the, the big swell of the public health issue is for us. So normal, normal age-related changes, um, there, are, there are, it's normal to have cognitive changes as we age. Um, one of the most common complaints is forgetting names. Um, you forget, you know, you can't find the word that you're looking for. Um, you misplace things, that's, these are all irritating but very normal. <laughs> uh, if we're tired, if we're stressed out, if we're ill, they can be worse and, and amplified. Um, and people are different. Some people, you know, their normal age-related changes will be different than someone else's. So there is this spectrum of changes um, that do happen. And what's really happening is that the the brain is aging. So just as our body ages, and we anticipate that through our body aging, we don't, you know, our metabolism changes. Um, we don't have the same amount of energy. Our eyesight changes. We have to get reading glasses. Our hearing changes. Our hair changes. We're, we're, we're anticipating all of this because the body's aging. One thing that we may not be anticipating, but it's just as, as normal, is that the brain ages just like the, it's a part of the body and it ages. But when the brain ages, the way it shows up is that you see it in the mind. The mind slows down. The brain doesn't process things as quickly. Um, and there's a bigger impact on the brain and therefore cognition from the health of the body as we age. You know, a, an older person's brain is more vulnerable to infection and being things such as that um, in the brain and, and being impacted by health issues and health issues increase 
as people age. So this is all going hand in hand. What's really happening is the working memory, this ability to hold things in your mind, several things at once, figure it out in this space of consciousness that we have and make up decisions and decide on your tasks and linear process. That's all working memory. That starts to slow down. So that's all. That's Does that all. mean less multitasking? Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, also, just yeah, just also not being able to remember, just the to be able to remember or draw up draw up things as quickly, holding all these those things in your mind. Yeah. So that's all normal. Um, so there are differences between normal aging, what we call mild cognitive impairment, and then something such as Alzheimer's or dementia. Before I get into this for a moment, mild cognitive impairment, have, have people heard of that in, in the room? Yeah. It's becoming more and more popular, um, more and more understood. <laughs> Not that people talk about it. Let me state that. <laughs> it's becoming more and more known um, uh, among people. Years ago, uh, well, when I first started this work, it was really a brand new diagnosis, and really people only heard of it clinically. Um, and now everybody hears about it, and in my work, I, I now draw in quite a number of people that have mild cognitive impairment as a diagnosis. So mild cognitive impairment is in between normal aging changes in, in, from aging and, and a diagnosis such as Alzheimer's or dementia. What mild cognitive impairment indicates is that the person has memory or cognitive complaints that are below what it should be when you're tested for your age or your education level, but it's not at the level of Alzheimer's or dementia, okay? Usually someone with mild cognitive impairment, it's pretty subjective. They know they have it. They, they can see the symptoms. Maybe people closest to them, family members can, but others generally couldn't. Okay, so um, there is some um, recognition that mild cognitive impairment is what's called the prodromal stage. Of a, of a dementia or Alzheimer's, which means that it's, it's the, the stage before we can get to a clinical diagnosis. Not all cases of mild cognitive impairment are that. So what's really important with people with mild cognitive impairment is that they make sure to get um, con consistent testing, uh, you know, once a year, twice a year, whatever their doctor thinks, once every two years, whatever their, their doctor thinks. But what's important with mild cognitive impairment is to understand if it's progressing. Some do progress to Alzheimer's or dementia, some do not, and they just stay where they are. And then there are fewer cases, but they are out there that they reverse. Okay, so that's, that is, so mild cognitive impairment is actually a really difficult diagnosis for people to have because it's so ambiguous. Um, so it, it, it has its own problems, but that's mild cognitive impairment. Now when we get to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia, let me first clarify this, this <coughs> distinction between dementia and Alzheimer's. I get asked this all the time. Dementia is not officially a diagnosis, but almost everybody gets it as a diagnosis. Um, clinicians are guilty of using dementia and Alzheimer's interchangeably because most cases of dementia are Alzheimer's disease, and, and so sometimes they're used interchangeably. Dementia is a term which indicates progressive cognitive decline. It's, it's not a diagnosis. Alzheimer's is the type of 
dementia. That's the type of di the diagnosis. Uh, vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body disease. These would be the, the actual diagnoses within it. So Alzheimer's is the most commonly diagnosed type of dementia. Vascular is the second. Most of the time, the, the people in my profession that we're working with people with dementia, they either have Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, or both, which is called mixed dementia. Now a diagnosis, <coughs> a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's disease is made when at least two cognitive symptoms have progressed to the point of interfering with someone carrying out their daily tasks. Okay, so that's quite a progression. Um, sometimes people will think of a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease that you either have it or you don't, like you either have cancer or you don't have cancer, but that's not how it is. They, they are getting very close to being able to do what's called in vivo diagnoses, so in a living body, um, either through the blood, the cerebral spinal fluid, so they'll be able to tell that yes, someone's gotten to the level of Alzheimer's or dementia. We're not quite there yet, but that's coming very soon, I think. Um, but still, even then, when they do that, Alzheimer's disease is on a spectrum, so it's not like you, you either have it or you don't. You're, you're either progressing towards it or you're not. Okay, so the difficulty when we get into um, the early warning signs is that because Alzheimer's disease works so slowly, it's called insidious onset, it's very, very slow progression, and because there's normal aging changes in the brain, the population is 65 and older, and because there's mild cognitive impairment and there's all this gray area, there's a big overlap between what's normal changes from aging, what's mild cognitive impairment, and what's very early mild Alzheimer's. So that's why sometimes you know, doctors will say um, with their patients that have memory complaints and they're testing them and seeing if they have a progression, they'll say, I can't give you a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. That doesn't mean that you're not on your way to it. It doesn't mean that you are. It just means clinically they can't make that diagnosis at that time. Make sense? So I want to just briefly go through some of the different types of dementia. I said that the Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, which together make mixed dementia, they have a tendency to present together. Um, these are the two most common. Alzheimer's disease is anywhere from 65 to 80% of, of diagnoses of dementia are Alzheimer's disease. Vascular dementia is considered to be around 15%. But um, in some autopsy research studies that they've done of people, they've done brain autopsies of people who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease while they were living, they were finding like up to 40% of them had pathology of Alzheimer's disease but also vascular dementia. So this was some years ago and so they started to understand that, oh, there's a tendency for these two to present together, and clinically they call them mixed dementia. I don't know that you hear that so much in, in practice um, yet. Sometimes I, I, some, some families I've worked with have. After that, um, there's a lot of different dementias or things that can cause dementia-like symptoms, but some of the more common ones are these last three, but these are really not common. <laughs> it's just they're, they're the ones you hear about more. Uh, frontotemporal dementias, there's a few variants of that tends to happen in, in, um, in the 50s or late 50s, uh, slightly more prevalent with men, 
them with women uh, presents with strange language problems or sudden personality, um, emotional affect changes, we call it blunted affect. Uh, Lewy body disease is related actually to Parkinson's Lewy body disease. Um, its hallmark presenting symptom is hallucinations or motor function problems. It's actually the same pathology physiologically in the brain as Parkinson's disease, but it starts in a different part of the brain and will move throughout the brain. Parkinson's disease um, is, I think, about 1% to 2% of the population. We have a, a Diane Church works here with us. She works with Parkinson's disease. In a, a percentage of people who have Parkinson's disease, and um, I've read anywhere from 25 to 40%, it will move throughout the brain. It will move out of the areas that it attacks on, um, you know, on the ner nervous system and the motor functions, and it will move throughout the brain and then be a progressive dementia. Um, but that's not everybody with Parkinson's disease. Although Parkinson's disease, even if it doesn't reach the level of a, of a clinical diagnosis for dementia, um, will often have with it cognitive symptoms and cognitive deficits. Okay. But again, that may not reach the point of dementia. So these are the different types of dementia. Um, what's different about them is that they all have different underlying physiological pathology in the brain what's the same about them, they, and they also have different presenting symptoms because they might start in different parts of the brain. What's the same about them is that they're all progressive dementias. And so in my work and in people who are in my work, um, once you know that someone has a progressive dementia, then it's just really about managing the symptoms. And as, it, as it, they go through the brain, whatever's attacking the frontal left hemisphere is going to have language problems no matter what which dementia it is. So, so we just start dealing with the, the symptoms. <clears throat> Any questions on this? So now I'm going to get into Alzheimer's. Um, these 10 warning signs of, of early symptoms will also uh, relate to other dementias. I'm, I'm going to be speaking specifically about Alzheimer's because that's the most common. Um, so depending on where other dementias start in the brain, they'll have different presenting symptoms. They might move differently throughout the brain, and that's true of Alzheimer's disease too. Uh, they move throughout the brain differently, but eventually where they'll, they'll travel throughout. So the, the hallmark characteristic presenting symptom of Alzheimer's disease is short-term memory loss. This is because Alzheimer's disease, not always, but tends to start in the hippocampus, which is a tiny stru structure in the middle of our brain. And the hippocampus is necessary for encoding and storing short-term memories. So when short-term memories are encoded and stored and therefore retrieved, the hippocampus is necessary. Okay. When a short-term memory is, is then sent out for long-term storage, it's stored in areas of the cortex, long-term memory, and the access to long-term memory is direct from the intention of the frontal lobe back to the storage. And you don't need the hippocampus for that. And that is why people with Alzheimer's disease can't remember what they did that morning, but can remember all of their long-term memories and why they will often go into them, because that's pleasurable, because that's something they can be successful at. Um, but that's why, because there's a different, that's okay, there's a different, there's a different access. Um, to that 
So that's the, the hallmark presenting symptom of Alzheimer's. It typically shows up, um, as I just said, you just can't remember what you just talked about or something you just read. Um, you can't remember what you did that morning. You don't remember that you had an appointment for this afternoon. Um, misplacing things, not being able to retrace your steps. It's, that's all short-term memory <coughs> stuff. Okay. Um, there's also just this difficulty completing familiar tasks or challenge in planning or solving. Um, what, what I see in people that have early stage, very mild dementia, is that um, their, what we call their serial processing tends to start to break down first. And only they and their closest family members typically see that. Um, and what I mean by this is that um, in order to change the channel, you have to do step one, step two, step three, step four, and they have to be in order. In order to get the laundry done, you have to do certain things in order. A recipe, following a recipe or cooking a meal is a good example. That's serial processing, where it, and you have to be able to be able to think about it as a whole, and then each step, and then you just attend to each step. Right? Sounds complicated, but we do this all the time, every day. This is a, such a basic part of our thinking and, and the way we get things done. That starts to break down, not being able to hold in your mind that, that working memory of what's first, second, third, fourth, or being able to, to hold in your mind the understanding of the whole, of what all those steps are doing and going towards. Um, so that can start to break down. So you may not be able to complete tasks, you may not be able to balance your checkbook, you may not be able to cook that meal or come up with that meal or do things that are rather familiar to you. And it's because of that, that serial processing. So sometimes they'll just leave things undone or do things incorrectly, um, that type of thing. There can be confusion to time or place in the earlier stages if we're talking about warning signs. This is really typically more typical in unfamiliar surroundings sometimes. Um, families will first become aware that something's wrong or different when the person, when they travel. And the, the, because they're in unfamiliar surroundings. And unfamiliarity and maybe some stimulus overload and a lot of things going on and their brain is struggling to make sense of it all. And they'll get very confused to time or place. So sometimes that can happen. The uh, understanding visual images or spatial relationships. This is a part of our brain the top here is called the parietal cortex. This, um, this part of our brain is unconscious, it's voluntary, we, we really can't do much to <laughs> impact it. it. It locates our body in space and time. It, um, it helps us understand how far away my body is from this table so I don't keep walking into it. If I'm gonna take a seat, it understands how my body ergonomically fits into that seat um, so that I don't keep knocking over my my cup. Uh, it, it tells me the contrast of colors and shadows, so I understand that there's a door there. Okay. So that would impact driving. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is the type of thing that you don't know you have a problem until you have a problem. Mm -hmm. Because it's just so automatic. Right? This, it, 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 this is hard to pick up for the person. Right. Um, so that so sometimes that can be, you can start to see some, some early signs with that. New problems with words, speaking, or writing, this would be new problems. Um, and a lot of this is, you know, is people have different 
deficits just as a part of who they are. You know, I've always had a hard time with names. I have always been terrible with names. So that won't be, you know, as I age, that won't be a clue for anybody. <laughs> then, neither will having a good budget. Uh, just so you know. I've never been good at that either. So it's really about what are new problems because everybody has strengths and weaknesses um, cognitively. Misplacing things, not being able to retrace steps is, is really a big thing. We all misplace things. Um, we all get under stress or get distracted and forgot what we just talked about or forgot where we put something or forgot what we were doing. That, that happens to all of us. But we can typically retrace our steps or just stop and remember and, and recall. Um, there can sometimes be poor judgment, particularly not understanding social context. I, I have found anecdotally that this typically happens later, but um, with frontotemporal dementias, this type of thing happens sooner because it tends to start in the frontal lobes, and this is frontal lobe disruption. Um, not understanding how, what, what clothes to put on that are appropriate for the weather, what clothes are appropriate for the social situation that you're going out to, what's an appropriate thing to say, that someone's waiting to be tipped, what a tip is, that, that type of thing, just um, disruptions there. So these last two, withdrawal from work or social activities, changes in mood or personality, they're related, they're very common. Um, so some of the, the, the two most common neuropsychiatric symptoms of Alzheimer's disease are depression and apathy. And a very, very early com uh, symptom and, and symptom throughout is withdrawal from work or social activities, withdrawal from conversations, withdrawal from relationships, withdrawal from things that they used to do. Now, um, and I just want to point out that this withdrawal and, the depre and possible depression, because it may or may not be from depression, are very common and typically start before short-term memory loss or before the short-term memory loss is noticed as a symptom. We're finding, um, clinically, they're finding that depression <coughs> is really prevalent in people who will go, older adults who will go on to develop a dementia. So they're, they're not exactly sure why. It may be that there are changes in the brain physiologically very early that lead to an organic underpinning to depression. It may be that the person very early on is starting to feel things shift and change, it, it may be other things, but there's a higher prevalence of depression. Now that doesn't mean that all older adults who are depressed are on their way to dementia. Depression um, rises in prevalence among older adults too. Depression is a specific uh, mental health issue that, that clinicians and doctors are concerned about. And so now we're finding this connection with possibly being a very, very early sign or symptom of Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, but there can also be um, apathy and a lack of initiation that can happen earlier than, than people think. So our frontal lobes, a part of, of the many things that they do for us is they help us initiate action. Our frontal lobes are directly connected to the emotional, visceral part of our body and our brain that determines what we want or what we need. I'm hungry, um, I want to go to that concert, I want to go see my friend, I need to do this. And so we have these needs and wants, and our frontal lobes 
process that and say, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and we make up the plan and we do it. That connection can get disrupted, and so the person will, will withdraw because they won't know how to initiate things. <coughs> that can sometimes be the reason. Or just apathy. There can be this disruption where they just don't care. They just can't get connected to things they used to care about. So it can be all three of these. The lack of initiation, the apathy, the depression that makes this withdrawal, this early withdrawal, and particularly from conversations. I've, I've heard that so much over the years. When I start to work with a family and, and I'll talk about this and they'll say, oh, yeah, she, she stopped really having conversations with us long before the memory, the memory loss. And so this, this can show up early. Just something to think about. Again, I don't want to freak you out that any, anytime anyone's depressed or you're feeling down, that that's what it means. But we are finding clinically there is a relationship here. And these are earlier, earlier symptoms. So something to think about. Any thoughts or questions? Uh, there are other possible causes of dementia. And the fact, this is not anywhere near an exhaustive list, but the fact that this exists is why if you or anyone you care about has concerns about your memory or your cognition, you should really get checked out. There could be other things going on in the body or brain, okay? Um, brain tumors, hydroencephalus is a buildup of fluid in the brain that can build up and press against brain matter, wherever it is, or the ventricles will swell and there will be cognitive symptoms um, associated with that. Thyroid dysfunction, whether it's hyper or hypo, has cognitive symptoms. Um, vitamin deficiencies, particularly the B vitamins. And, and which? B. The B vitamins? Um, D. B. B is in boy. Particularly the B vitamin deficiencies. And older adults um, typically, commonly, not because something's wrong, have, will have lower um, or have deficiencies, lower B vitamins, just a, uh, as a part of aging. So it's something to think about. Um, alcohol, and that's really about a long-term alcohol abuse, has a really, has a big impact on the brain. Medication side effects, big, big cause for cognitive disruptions and older adults typically have more medications. Um, so these are just, again, things to think about. Infections, I think I mentioned this before, but even simple infections, as people age in, in older adults, can impact the brain and can in, impact cognition and create delirium, which has over has uh, mass symptoms of, of dementia. Depression, which I mentioned, um, is known to have memory problems. I'm going to back to infection. Uh -huh. uh, the the relationship between infections and your brain. Mm -hmm in this case would be only if you have hallucinations or might infections lead to other kinds of symptoms in your brain? Um, well, d infections typically what they will lead to is not always but a delirium. So delirium can have some hallucinations but not always. Delirium will be this great fluctuation in and out of different levels of consciousness um, that a person will have. So they can be very despondent and, and not really notice things and withdrawn and depressed and then it can fluctuate up and they can get very manic and agitated, possibly have hallucinations. So. Um, bladder yeah. infections, I have mm -hmm. been dealing with that 
um, you know, it's it's an amazing change in yeah. dentation mm -hmm. with the minor infection. And UTIs. that is one of the most common are UTIs. Yes, I bet it is. Yes, are mm -hmm. UTIs that um, they they have huge cognitive impact and more so, even more so, on older adults. Okay, older adults, it, your, your brains are more vulnerable in general to, to changes and in, in whatever's going on in your body. Uh, depression has known memory, memory and other cognitive deficits. Now the memory disruptions that may come with depression are um, a little bit different than with Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's, the hippocampus is being disrupted. With depression, it's a frontal lobe dysfunction. The person's not paying attention. It's as though their, their energy is being drawn away by the depression. And there are two, two elements that are necessary for encoding a memory, imprinting a memory. You have to have the hippocampus working, but you have to be paying attention. <laughs> if you're not paying attention, you're not going to encode, you know, have a memory to imprint. So depression has other cognitive problems too, particularly attention, attention deficits. And then chronic stress. Um, you know, stress can fragment the mind, and in the same way, you're not paying attention, you're misplacing things, you're not encoding, your memory's not as good. Um, stress and anxiety can, can really fragment the mind. So there are other, there are things to get checked out for. If someone has memory or other cognitive concerns, a big part of a diagnosis, which I'm gonna go into, is ruling out these things, because there could be other things going on, yes. And say if you take a medication for your thyroid or medication for depression, mm -hmm. um, does that slow down the possible progression of the dementia? As opposed well, to somebody that was untreated? Well, so the, um, what's caught me in the way you've, you've, you've asked this is if it slows down the progression. Mm -hmm. So. Those things are risk factors. Those things have dementia-like symptoms. So if you don't have an underlying dementia in your brain, and you have depression or thyroid problems, and you take medication for them, then that should clear up the cognitive symptoms. If you do have an underlying dementia, say Alzheimer's in your brain, and you have dementia or thyroid problems as well, and you get them treated, that should improve your cognition. But once you do have uh, neurodegenerative disease, such as, as one of the dementias we're talking about, particularly Alzheimer's disease, once you have that, once it's known that you have that, we can't, we can't stop the progression of it. There are some ways that it appears we can slow it down or at least um, bring about a higher function level longer. So having depression or thyroid dysfunction can bring cognitive problems, but they don't cause dementia. They have dementia-like symptoms. You can have them, you can not have dementia and have them. You can have them both. You can have dementia and not have that. Am I, okay, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Yeah. So, okay. Was there, was there another question or, okay. Yes, I have a question, yeah. please. Would you expand upon your last sentence, see your doctor if you have any concerns? Yes, yeah, so if you, um, and we're gonna go now into the diagnostic process, which really would, um, not for everybody, but would start with your primary care physician. And one of the things that they do is they rule out whatever else could be causing your cognitive symptoms. Through what process? They will do it through, well, let's go, let's go to that. Okey doke. 
One of the most important things that they're going to do is a full medical history. And so, you know, we're of the technological age, and so we think that MRI and brain scans and all of this stuff is important, and it is, but one of the most important parts of the diagnosis is getting a really good medical history and history of symptoms and possible progression, because that will tell your doctor a lot. Because diseases have different calling cards. They have different presenting symptoms and characteristics in the way that they manifest. And so that, that will tell your doctor a lot. So a doctor will first get that from both the person who's suffering from some memory loss or cognitive problems, and ideally a really uh, someone who's close to them who can also uh, fill that in. Because if someone does have memory problems, then that's a problem in the history, um, in giving the history. So that is, that, um, that's really important. They'll do blood and urine tests, to, you know, thyroid, different things like that. They will, if there are still problems, if they still have concerns, um, they may send you for different neurological exams. They may do brain scans. And then neuropsychological exams. This is a, a big battery of tests. It can be a little exhaustive or involved. But when we're dealing with brain diseases, and particularly dementias, neuropsychological exams are important because they really give you detailed information on all the cognitive domains and, and singles out each domain and where it is. And so if you do have concerns, say particularly for someone with mild cognitive impairment, if you do have concerns about something progressing, that's a, that will give you a good baseline of where you're at and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to track progression. What is a neuropsychological exam? It's a written battery of tests. Okay. And uh, in order to track progression or no progression, is that very same test done every two or three years? Uh, or are there other ways to measure what, what the baseline measures? Um, there are other ways to do it. So a full, um, a full battery of neuropsych exams is, is more involved. Oh, yeah. And people do different things. Um, so I know some people who go to just a neuropsychologist every couple years, and they have MCI. Some people go to the memory clinic, say, at Dartmouth, and the psychiatrist there, depending, will do different exams with them. Um, they may not do a full neuropsych exams. They may do different types of exams with them. I'm just curious, how willing do you find people to do these things? What kind of problem? Well, I don't do these. <laughs> I, send, I, I send people to people to do these. Um, and they talk to me about doing them. How willing are people? I don't know anybody who likes it. Um, it's it can be intrusive. It can be frightening. If you're already frightened about your cognition and possibly having a dementia, uh, you don't really want to know. But you know, you need to know. Um, people can feel really stupid and, and, and self-conscious. You know, there's a lot of test anxiety. So it, it can be really hard. Um, some people don't don't do it. They don't want to do it, and that's you know their choice. But most realize that it, it, it some it's necessary <coughs> at different points. Um, uh, you know, I kind of heard, how do you get somebody to take the test if you suspect? Mm -hmm. Well, there can be um, kind of roadblocks um, your loved one runs into that's going to require somebody 
to decide how much loss is there. For instance, if they start driving erratically, they'll gladly go in there to prove that they can still drive. Um, if they are learning that they're going to, to lose control of their finances because they get confused or whatever, they'll want to show you that they're just fine and they'll go through the test. I speak from firsthand experience. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, there are also, and, and I've had those experiences with people too, there are also people who will have the exact opposite reaction to that. That if they're driving or finances are threatened, they go nowhere near a doctor and you are not invited over to the house anymore. So, <laughs> and then, but most people are somewhere in between. Can I speak to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm one who did go in for testing, not expecting at all to have MCI, I expected an answer for why I didn't learn like other people so I could forgive myself and get on with my life. This is when I was really old. And people had mentioned testing whenever I kind of was whining about that. And I would always say, well, I'm all better, never mind, you know. But finally I went in. I was really irritated that I got, I didn't get the diagnosis I had planned on, you know. <laughs> she was hoping she was dyslexic, right? Yes, yeah, I you know, I just kind of wanted to solve the mystery. And so the, the hardest thing about it is no one talks about it. I, I, I asked you, I said, well, where are all the other people with MCI? And she said, walking around, they don't know they have it. Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's why I started to come, come here. But I did do one thing. I changed the diagnosis so that I could handle it better. And I changed it to magnificent creative imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and that helped cut it, you know. But I would still like to learn more and find other people who have a diagnosis. So. Anyway, yeah. thanks, Sally. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and we are going to be doing, we, we, we have programs here for early stage and mild cognitive impairment, and we're going to be continuing to yeah. do those so that Sally can find her peers and, and other people like that. But as far as the, um, the motivations, you two are on my mind. So as far as the motivations um, for, for getting someone to have a diagnosis, people have all different reactions to having memory or cognitive problems and, and um, you know, in, in the very early stages, you, you, in the very beginning, it's, we always encourage people, their family members or friends or whoever's concerned about them and seeing things to approach the person and, you know, with, with their dignity. I mean, it's, it's their life. It's, they're, they're probably aware of something. And to express your concerns and encourage them to follow up, but give them control of the situation. Sometimes, um, you know, when we really are worried for someone, a family member or someone we really care for, we're really worried for them. We can sort of just want them to do it um, because we're, we're frightened, and that can take away their sense of control. And I can tell you that's a big trigger. It was a trigger for all of us, right? I mean, none of us like to feel that way, but particularly somebody who has cognitive problems and they know it and they're frightened. There's a, a big fear of losing control anyway. So I would encourage you, if there is anyone in your life that you, you do have concerns about, to think about that when you're going to approach them. I, I encourage you to be frank and approach them with caring and concern to, to not stay silent but to, to remember that and have that in your mind, that, that a loss of control is a, a big fear of, of people. Um, did you want to say something? I want to ask a question. Sure. So if you 
care for someone who has no interest in seeing a doctor or getting a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Why, under what circumstances for treatment or insurance or whatever, do you have to have a diagnosis? So is access to care or facilities impacted by not getting a diagnosis, even though someone clearly needs some help? All right, so you're talking about access to care facilities for other reasons. Or even this reason. Or even it. Alzheimer's. Yeah. So um, this is getting up, not completely hypothetical. For them, it's hypothetical, right? So if someone has Alzheimer's disease and they're perfectly healthy otherwise, okay. then they don't need to access health care. Right. Okay. So what's the question? Well, they get lost, for instance. Mm-hmm. So is that what you're Yeah, I well, and you know my situation. I do, so. I do. And I don't I don't want to expose too much. Yeah. I want you to Yeah. So I guess we'll talk later. I just yeah. Is there is there a time when you've got to force a diagnosis, or the individual is not going to get the care they need? Okay. That's what I'm, what I'm getting. Yeah, at. yeah, okay. yeah. So let me That's address some of the, yeah. Okay. Let me address some of that. So um, I've I've been asked this before. Of you're like, do you need a diagnosis? Um, no. Yeah. Uh, it depends. So <laughs> I think everyone deserves to know what's going on with their body. Right, and know what's going on with their health and to make the decisions they want to make. But as, as she's saying, not everybody wants to know. Um, so if you think about in the future, if someone does have a, a disease like Alzheimer's and doesn't want to know and refuses to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis, at some point there will be problems and it would be better for them if their diagnosis was in their medical record so that people could respond accordingly. So if they have some other health issue that gets them into the hospital, medications, treatments, these Alzheimer's disease, knowing that someone has Alzheimer's or a dementia would be very important for the medical team to know. Things like that. Um, if you want, if they have or you want um, to use long-term care insurance, you need a diagnosis. Um, things like that uh, <coughs> if they're lost and, and um, you want people to keep an eye on them or um, you can register them with some fire departments or police departments the Lebanon Police Department has like a little Alzheimer's unit where they you can register residents that have memory issues or, or Alzheimer's or dementia just so that they know so if there's any ever any problems or anything so it would yeah it, it would behoove them it may, mine may be a related question. I just wonder about insurance. Yep. Once somebody has that diagnosis, how does that impact in general? So I, I really don't know the, the specifics of that, but I know that that's something that needs to be thought about. <laughs> that can be a problem from what I've heard, um, but I've never tried to get long-term care insurance, but I do know that from stories that I've heard from people, um, if you try to get long-term care insurance and you already have a diagnosis, that, that I, I don't know that it prevents you from getting it, but it may financially make it 
unfeasible for you to, to maintain it. And then there was another um, <coughs> a woman I worked with whose husband has mild cognitive impairment and um, it was progressing, so she was you know, trying to prepare for this may very well be a dementia. And he already had long-term care insurance. Mm -hmm. And she said, so why do, I need a, why do I need to keep seeing if it's progressing in Alzheimer's for it to kick in? Uh, they needed to know that. I was thinking not necessarily long-term care, but just health insurance in general. What kind of impact does that have? Do you mean on the cost of health insurance or? Or the ability to have it. Well, with Obamacare, I think you, you um, and also with condition. and also with Medicare and without Obamacare. <laughs> yeah. Well, if they're 65 and older, they can they get Medicare, and that does cover Alzheimer's. It covers whatever the person has, but there are different. And I don't know the the specifics of Medicare, but it doesn't cover everything, <laughs> you know. But that's but um, Medicare doesn't exclude treating okay. Alzheimer's, okay. right? It may have different exclusions of different tests or lab exams or different things like that, but they don't exclude treating that disease. Okay. I have a question, please. Yes. Could you tell me specifically what would show up on an MRI to indicate that there might be a possible diagnosis of Alzheimer's? So what and, is it that shows up? Okay, so an, an MRI isn't necessarily used to diagnose Alzheimer's. It's used to exclude what else may be causing the symptoms. Okay. So right now, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is called a diagnosis of exclusion. That means that we don't have a test right now that says yes or no. What we do is we have to exclude everything else that it could be. That's why a full medical history is so important. And I want you to know that there's a very high accuracy rate clinically uh, of this diagnosis. This is not a shot in the dark. Um, so an MRI would be, would be more ruling out things like a brain tumor, a hydroencephalus, or different things. Um, they're creating more and more sensitive MRIs, but right now an MRI, is, it, there's gonna have to be some atrophy um, or progression into the disease before they'll be able to see it. So if you're talking about very early on, they may not see anything related to the disease, but they'll rule out other things. Risk factors. And then we're gonna get into lifestyle strategies. Um, so the biggest, the biggest risk factor is aging, by far. The vast majority of all cases of Alzheimer's disease, 90 to 95% of them are in the population 65 and older. Boom. <laughs> um, family history. If you have a family history of Alzheimer's disease in parents or siblings, your risk factor goes up. Um, I, think it's, I, I think it's about two or three times. Um, this is similar to the, there are different diseases that run in families. Right? So if you have a, a family history of colon cancer or breast cancer or different types of disorders, you have a higher risk factor for it. Same with Alzheimer's. Doesn't mean you will get it. It just means your risk factor goes up. These things, diseases run in families. Right? There are some genetic contributions. Um, this is complicated, but the, the way I'll explain it to you today is that there is a familial form that is genetically dominant of Alzheimer's disease. This is like 3% of all cases worldwide. It's dramatic. Sometimes we hear about it on PBS. 
Um, but the vast, the vast majority of people that have Alzheimer's in the world are not that. This is a case where um, they know the genetic mutation. If you get it from one of your parents, you have a one in two chance of getting Alzheimer's. I mean, it's just crazy. This is a situation where a family will have six children and five die of Alzheimer's. Okay, that is not most of us. But there are genetic contributions. So outside of that, so let's push that off to the side, the familial genetic dominance. There are genetic contributions for people like you and I. Um, that's complicated. They're finding out more and more. Um, there are at least 12 genetic contributions that they've found that have you know, some weight or significance, um, some more than others, none of them deterministic. Some of them, or, or even many of them, their feeling can be modified, the impact can be modified with lifestyle strategies and, and health. So, um, you know, again, it, the, the genetic contribution, there's not like one gene that's given it to us. You know, um, Angelina Jolie a, a while ago had that, she discovered she had that, that gene mutation for breast cancer. I think her mother had had it. She made her decisions based on that because her, her risk of getting it was like skyrocketed. Alzheimer's isn't like that. It, it's not like that for us. It's um, probably a combination of different things. <coughs> so, and head trauma is also one. I, you might recall the whole controversy in the NFL and head concussions and, and all of that. So head trauma is going to be one. I want to talk, though, about these seven modifiable <coughs> risk factors. So in the last few years, there's been a big splash in the Alzheimer's world research-wise. Researchers have done some very large epidemiological, population-wide analyses of risk factors for Alzheimer's and dementia. And what they found was that up to, they estimated that up to 50% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease could have been impacted in a positive way, as in prevented, by these seven modifiable risk factors. Okay, so this is a, from a preventive point of view and, and longer term. So even if you start um, brain healthy lifestyle strategies as an older adult, it still makes a difference. But the younger someone starts, the better. Um, once the disease has manifested in the brain, we don't have a way yet to stop it. So now there's a big focus on how can we prevent it? How do, how do we prevent it? And they came up with these, there are these seven risk factors that are a big part of eventually developing Alzheimer's or dementia that we can do something about. So we'll talk about these, and these are a part of the whole brain healthy, brain healthy behaviors. You'll hear that term a lot, we use that a lot in my work, or lifestyle strategies for brain health, and they make a difference. But it's still worth trying it even though you're over 65. Oh, no, yes. No, absolutely do it if you're <laughs> over 65. And so my point was, if you already have Alzheimer's, we can't stop that. But it's still worth doing this. It's still a non-pharmacological intervention for people with Alzheimer's, whether it's very early 
or even later on to eat well and manage their you know exercise and be socially engaged and treat depression and make sure that they're healthy that's that's good for them it'll help them to maintain a higher function level longer to be more at peace to ease stress and anxiety so this is good for everybody all the time yeah <laughs> But I but, guess what my real question was, uh -huh. but that doesn't slow down. Does no. So if somebody already has Alzheimer's disease, it, it doesn't slow the progression from what we know. Um, what it seems, what it does do, if you, if you measure different things like depression or anxiety level, agitation level, function level, so what someone can do independently, um, they will maintain a higher function level longer. They will have lower stress, lower anxiety, lower depression. So higher quality of life. Yeah. So that appears as though, in their behavior manifesting, as though you've slowed the disease down. <coughs> we don't know that we really have physiologically, but they're, they're doing better with it longer. So the, um, the essential thing to know and to remember about diet when we're thinking about lifestyle strategies for brain health is that what is good for the heart is good for the brain. So the heart, the brain, um, a, a, an adult brain is about three pounds. And even for a small person, that's not a big percentage of your body weight. But the brain takes a quarter of every heartbeat of blood flow to feed it. It's, it's, it consumes a tremendous amount of calories, takes a lot of blood, glucose, oxygen, for, for a healthy brain. So there's a direct connection between the heart health <clears throat> and brain health, and that's why cardiovascular disease and problems with the heart is a big risk factor for eventually developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so first it's just about getting a good heart healthy diet and managing your numbers. Um, there's longitudinal <coughs> studies that demonstrate that obesity, unmanaged high cholesterol, unmanaged hypertension in midlife, so from mid-aged adults, leads to a higher risk factor for eventually developing Alzheimer's or dementia as an older adult. Okay, so it's about taking care of that. Diabetes gives an increased risk factor, about two and a half, three times for someone with diabetes. For, for Alzheimer's disease, and considering that diabetes is a big public health concern of our time, you know that connection is is something to be thinking about. It, it it's concerning, um, and then making sure to have a heart healthy diet. Diet was one of the seven modifiable risk factors. Eating a healthy diet. Um, if you have any other health conditions or anything like that, there are many ways to have a heart healthy diet. So I'm, I'm just listing some of the more common ones that are, are listed here, Mediterranean diet, and rich in antioxidants, and, and, and that type of thing. But you really, there are, you know, there, people eat different diets all over the world, like really varied what, what's normal in, in a diet. So there are different ways to eat a heart-healthy diet and a brain-healthy diet. So this is one that gets a lot of attention, that gets a lot of research, is the Mediterranean diet, more organic in general less processed foods, more vegetables, lean proteins. Um, you know, this is not, this is stuff we hear a lot, right? This is talked about a lot. So that's the diet. 
So I can't talk enough about exercise. There's been so much, so much research on exercise with older adults in general, and exercise with preventative of Alzheimer's or dementia, and exercise and the impact that it has. Are you going, yeah, <laughs> good. Um, and the impact that it has on people who have Alzheimer's or dementia. So there is, um, the, the results they're showing in research is that people who exercise regularly, you actually can grow your brain. So a part of normal aging is brain, is that your brain shrinks, it gets smaller, right? Like other parts of our body do too. This is pretty normal. People that exercise, the frontal lobes, particularly in the hippocampus, will either maintain volume and in some cases can gain a little bit of volume. Right? Um, exercise can make the whole metabolic processing that the brain goes through more efficient. Exercise lowers um, blood pressure. It lowers stress. It improves sleep. These are all a big part of brain health. Um, it helps you manage those numbers, your blood pressure and your weight and your diabetes. So what they found is that consistency is a really important factor. So it's not about going out and training for a marathon and then running the marathon or trying to and then never working out again. It's, it's really about incorporating an active lifestyle into your life. So make sure to do things that you like so that you'll do them. I mean, that really is the key to, to staying active is, is to just incorporate it into the way you live um, and have it be things that are enjoyable. And the latest, um, uh, research on this is strength training. So they've done, and we've actually designed them an exercise program that we're hoping to get funded here based on that research um, to, to run here for people that are cognitively normal and mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia with strength training. So what they've found in, in studies with strength training with people with mild, I think it was mild cognitive impairment um, was their population was that people who did resistance training two to three times a week, I think it was for like a, a, an, at least an hour, um, and they, they were trainers. It wasn't like they just went and did it themselves. They had trainers. But people who involved themselves in strength training, either um, the progression of mild cognitive impairment was held at bay, and some people even gained a little ground. So there's something about that particularly. They don't know why, but it, it's getting results. Uh, so is aerobic exercise, okay? So it's really about those, those things and the consistency have shown to make a big difference. And, and in many ways, not only on your brain, but as I was saying, on your sleep, on your stress, on, on just exercise is a part of just a, a quality life and of, of well-being. Excuse me. Yep. So did you have that literature? Do you have that right I do have that literature. Would you be interested in some? Yeah, so do you have my email? I, I, I do. Okay. Um, email me and I'll send you some of the studies that, that we have. Um, and I'll let you know. Hopefully we'll be getting that funded. And we came up with a really great program to, to run here based on that. A research program, but it would definitely. And it will be resistance training? We'll, we're going to have a walking club. And um, we're, you know people have their Fitbits. And, <laughs> and there'll be different levels of membership on, on the steps that you take. But that will also be a social component. So people will be getting together and planning out their, their walks and, and doing walks. And then there'll be a strength training component as well. But email me, and, I'll, and anybody can email me, and I'll, I'll send you some of the, the research studies. It's very interesting and exciting. 
actually. Um, so, but, so there's, there's diet and exercise, and those are very important parts of, of brain health. But so is staying engaged and active. These are just as important, as, uh, not only as a part of brain health, reducing stress and keeping your mind in, involved and keeping your brain sharp and healthy, but it's just a part of a good life, right? And, and brain health is in that context of having a, a life of meaning and, and well-being. So staying socially active and engaged, that involves the mind. That's considered like a mental engagement. You don't have to do Sudoku puzzles every day. You can. But you know, just staying involved in life. <coughs> learning new things is really, is really a big one. So this is learning new things, not, you know, if, if you're really good at crossword puzzles, keep doing them. But if you're really good at them, the idea here is that you've you have a well-carved groove <laughs> in your brain and your mind of being able to do them. So it's still good to do them, but what really makes a difference in cognitive reserve, in making more connections um, between brain cells, is learning new things and, and staying curious and staying open. Um, engagement, social support and engagement reduces stress, um, has a positive impact on quality of life, and as I said, mental engagement those strategies should involve learning and staying curious. And again, things you enjoy. Don't be slogging through calculus. No fun. <laughs> no fun. <laughs> Do you have an opinion on the things they advertise on television, you know, brain game things? I, I can't remember. Luminosity. No, except that I think that they're worthwhile, and there is some, in the research that I was talking about with the resistance training, they bring in also the cognitive training and measure that as well in people that are cognitively normal and mild cognitive impairment, and that seems to have an impact as well. What has a bigger impact is the, is the physical aspects of, of physical activity and, and diet and, and um, diminishing other health concerns like diabetes and, and heart disease, those have the biggest impact, but it seems as though cognitive training does as well. Um, so I think it's, it's worthwhile. If that's what's keeping you engaged in learning, then, then that's it. But for some people that doesn't work, so just try, try other things, something else. So that's it today. This is a summary of the strategies, just to remember to exercise, heart healthy diet, Keep learning, stay curious, stay open, socially engaged, lower stress, just have a good life. Just figure out what your good life is, I'm sure you have by now, and engage it. Okay. So any other questions? Yeah. Um, I'll just give you an example mm -hmm. of where I see a problem and where I don't know what the answer is for society, but a mm -hmm. uh, friend, 72 year old, early uh, Alzheimer's, lives alone. Mm. can no longer drive. Once you can no longer drive, I, and she's depressed, but not being able to drive and get about anymore is, you know, you're, you're, stu you're sunk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it, that's a real challenge. Yeah, it's, so you can't uh, socialize and you, uh, you know, you're dependent. I think yeah. she's more depressed over not being able to drive than she is over having the Alzheimer's, although that's pretty depressing. No, I, and she probably yeah. is because, yeah. um, Thinking about having Alzheimer's is this huge, overwhelming, nebulous thing. Not being able to drive is very practical and real and immediate. Yeah. So that's often true. 
And it's not because they don't care about the fact that they have Alzheimer's, but you can't wrestle with that. There's nothing to do with that. Mm. You can get angry about driving. You can, you know, respond yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, Alzheimer's doesn't is immovable in, in that sense. So, so your friend is one of for people in my profession. She's one of our, like we we stay up at night thinking about these people, isolated people that are isolated that have memory problems or, or even other health conditions, but particularly Alzheimer's disease that live alone or depressed. Yeah. She's drinking. Stop yeah, drinking. okay then. All right, yeah. she's, you know, I'm going to be up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're, they're the hardest. They need the most help, and they're the hardest to help. Yeah. Yeah. So, so encourage her. To, is she in New Hampshire, Vermont? Maine. She, oh, she's in Maine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, every community has different services for seniors, and um, it's, it's really about encouraging her somehow to get involved with them. Let someone in. Um, a good social worker who's connected will be able to hopefully finagle getting her, getting her some services. But yeah, that she's the, that's a hard one. Yeah. I've heard that, and maybe that's not your topic, but I've heard that uh, once somebody is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, that the medication they take does not really halt the progression. Well, that, that's true. So the, the medications that are approved for Alzheimer's disease um, do not attend to the physiological pathology in the brain. Once we have a drug that does that, this conversation is, is over, right? I mean, that's what they're going for. So what they have are drugs that in different ways attend to the symptoms of memory loss, particularly. Um, so there, it's, for, it's to alleviate the, the impact of memory loss, but it doesn't, yeah, so they, so they, they work? Um, it seems like people see differences earlier than later, yeah, that's for no more than two years. Um, the, the general rule of thumb, and this is played out in my clinical experience anecdotally and, and in other clinicians too, the general rule of thumb is that uh, most, a good half of family members don't really see a difference, not better or worse, but it could very well be doing something and it would be worse without them. I mean, so, so the idea is um, if the person can tolerate it, because not everybody can tolerate different medications, then it, it may be helping them for some time or alleviating the symptoms. Like the symptoms could be worse. So. A number of families um, do see a difference where they're, they're, it, it is improved, but it's limited. And then there's a smaller number of people who just can't tolerate it or they get worse. Mm. And so they stop taking the medication. So the bottom line is uh, these medications may not make a difference, but if you're going to take them, the sooner you do it, the better? It seems like the earlier, the better. Once, mm. once someone gets into this disease, um, it's really, it, 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 we, we just, there's less and less we can do for them on that level. I mean, there, there are a lot of non-pharmacological interventions that do make a difference, that are very real, but um, once someone gets, the further someone gets in, so, you know, a lot of the, the Alzheimer's research started with people in facilities. 
that were quite advanced. And then it's progressively over the years, the, the research has been getting with people earlier and earlier and earlier in the disease, because they've realized more and more like, oh, okay, that's too far. Oh, even that's too far. Oh, even that's too far. And now we're getting to a point where it's like, all right, how do we prevent this? And who is this, what we're calling this preclinical population, which is incredibly important for researchers right now. Um, we know that the pathology of Alzheimer's disease starts in the brain 10 to 20 years before symptoms. Right, so we know that. that that's not controversial. What's very uh, urgent for researchers right now is who is this, who is this population? that has the pathology but is cognitively normal and will be cognitively normal for years. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, how do we find out who they are? And then how do we get them to come in and be a part of research? Because it will probably be figured out with them. I volunteer. <laughs> Family history. Yeah. That's no, and a lot of people, so that's great. And if you want to get information, um, there's a, some really big important trials happening in Boston. <laughs> And Ali Stark, who's a new neurologist who specializes in dementia at the Memory Clinic in, in here at Dartmouth, um, is getting involved in a new trial, I think this year or next year, and I'm not exactly sure what the trial is, but I, I can get you information on that too. So what's happening is that a lot of people don't respond the way you respond. A lot of people are like, I don't want to know. And I can't blame them, but then some are saying- to plan your life. Well, and, and they want to be a part of finding a cure. Well, and also, you know, I'd want to know because I would like to make decisions now while I'm still able to mm -hmm. and get myself into a safe place. Because safety is huge. huge. Safety's everything. It is. Safety and being at peace. Yeah. And making sure. You know, another thing that I'm uh, interested in, and I, and I can't find information on the internet, is anesthesia. Mm. How does anesthesia affect a middle-aged normal brain, an older over 65 brain, and somebody who does have dementia yeah. or Alzheimer's. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know the particulars of the, of, of the impact, but I can tell you that anesthesia has, just, just like with other things, impacts an older adult's brain more. Yeah. The older adults are more vulnerable yeah. physically. Mm -hmm. And I've heard many stories, and, and by um, doctors as well, not just from the family members that, um, so someone with dementia or Alzheimer's anesthesia will impact even more because their brain is more vulnerable, right? So you were talking about why does someone need to know? That's yeah. in the future. Um, but also, I've heard, I've heard from many families and, and, and doctors as well that there is this phenomenon or, or it's known that someone didn't have Alzheimer's or dementia and went into surgery for something else and their response to the anesthesia seemed to make everyone aware. It's almost as though the family's experience is though it, it kick-started the mm -hmm. Alzheimer's or dementia, so of course, it was there, right? but maybe it was milder or much more latent or they were dealing with many other things and people didn't realize it for what it was, but the anesthesia had such an impact yeah, on you, their brain. Do you know if anybody's doing research, and maybe this is a stupid question, on an anesthesia that won't impact the brain but will put you to sleep? I guess it's impossible. I, yeah, I don't, I, 
I haven't heard of anything like that, and I don't know anywhere near enough about anesthesia to know if that's even possible. Yeah. But there is a, a thing with anesthesia and brains yeah. and vulnerability of brains mm -hmm. and dementia. And so if choice of local or general, go local. <laughs> if choice, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. some surgeries I mean, those, have a choice. Those, if you have a choice, yeah. and this and this is where you asked earlier, why have a diagnosis? Right. This would be one of the reasons. You know, so that you could make a, a, a good decision right. based on that. Mm -hmm. Last question. I'm assuming that the other forms of dementia mm -hmm. would also respond to all of these positive things one can do. Yes, that's Just a good. Like that's a, yes, yeah, that's a good question. Um, that was specifically more about vascular dementia and Alzheimer's because they're the vast majority of all cases of dementia. The other ones would too. It's about brain health and you know lowering your stress and 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 all of that. But things like some of the frontotemporal dementias. Um, what is vascular dementia? Well, that is from heart disease or strokes. Um, so, for instance, um, multi-infarct strokes, small vessel disease, where the, oh, like, the, uh, so there would be these series of tiny strokes in the brain, but the person yeah. doesn't feel them, right? And then they build, they, <coughs> they damage brain matter, and they build up, right. and that will progress throughout the brain. Yeah, that will. Has anybody ever? I just thought of this. Mm -hmm. um, tried to add to the equation of figuring all this out, um, basic personality type. Me, I'm a Pollyanna. I'm always positive. Mm -hmm. See that, you know, and I love life. Um, and my husband's a big complainer, mm -hmm. and he doesn't think people treat him well enough. Mm -hmm. You know, we are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. How has anybody studied how that's going to impact your quality of life? Will I stay happy even though I'm getting demented? <laughs> that's a good way to go. How does it affect your no, that, personality? That, I, uh, that's good. That's good. So um, there were a couple of questions in there for me. One is personality type, and yeah. is it like so? How not getting, not your prevalence or your risk for getting dementia, but it was more about personality type and how will you go how through it? How will you deal with it, or how, what will you? How will you be once you get it? Will you continue to be a happy person? Maybe it's impossible to know. If you're grouchy, it is, you'll be yeah. Um, so there, I, those are asked a lot. There is some, there's a good amount of, of research on how the personality changes yeah. as someone goes through Alzheimer's. I don't know how much there is on really um, measuring people for a specific personality type and then seeing how different types go through it. Because most, there are ways to measure people for specific personality types. There are several systems for that and say validated instruments. But the vast majority of people don't get that before get tested for personality type before they get dementia. And then it's too and then what, Yeah. yeah. Um, but we, we can talk about, because this is a, a big conversation among family members and, and people themselves that have Alzheimer's or dementia, is, um, you know, everybody talks about the, the mild, sweet grandmother who then was swearing and yelling, and, and actually my grandmother was like that. Uh, she was a very mild, sweet, lovely lady, and, and at one point, during her Alzheimer's, she became very agitated and angry and said mean things. And um, so that wasn't her, right. that, that we considered that the disease, still mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. but she, And she moved through it, so that was a phase. Mm -hmm. 
of the disease, and then she moved through it, and she was sweet again. But she was more demented, but she, she was sweet again. But I've, um, I've met people that didn't really go through that. Um, I have an aunt whose mother, so she's my, my uncle's second wife, so her mother had Alzheimer's disease, and, and she took care of her mother at home throughout the entire thing, and she said my mother was mild and sweet and throughout the entire thing, like she just was that way. Um, I've, no I've noticed anecdotally, I haven't done any research on it, but anecdotally that um, people that have big personalities, they're controlling and need a lot of attention or are always in, you know, the, <laughs> tell the me, big, tell yep, me, tell me. that they tend to, um, not do well. They, they can have the, the biggest negative reaction because if you, yeah. so what's going to happen is the personality, whatever personality you go into this disease or anything with, is, is going to respond, it's going to be how it responds to losing control. Mm -hmm. Now nobody does that with grace, I don't think. I mean that's hard. Mm -hmm. None of us like that, the feeling of not, not having control. But some personalities manage that better than others yeah. but at some point as you're going through Alzheimer's or dementia you're you know through the just the progression of the deterioration even if you were the most mature and mild-mannered and um, you know emotionally regulated person that starts to break down your ability to manage that mm -hmm. starts to break down as well and that's really about the disease not the personality responding personalities will be responding to it in the early stages but at some point, the disease takes over. Yeah. Uh, have you had an experience with the, uh, the uh, uncomfortable situation when you finally get to the point where the person really cannot take care of their affairs anymore? And how does that work? How do you know when that, yeah. you have to take over their finances. Mm -hmm. How do you know when the time is right for that and how do you make it happen? So you should come in April. Melissa <laughs> 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 yeah. Grenier is going to be, she's a social worker with the Alzheimer's Association um, of New Hampshire. She works in the Bedford office and she's coming up here and she's going to be here two weeks in a row um, giving uh, education programs on those types of questions on once you get further into the disease. I mean, I can answer you, but that's a, that's a long conversation. Um, so that's something where you want a social worker, or a clinician, someone like me, or, or Melissa, sitting down with you and saying, okay, who are you dealing with? You get very particular about the situation. What are the resources in your situation? What's the personality of this person? What exactly, what's your relationship with this person? And you try to figure out a script and a strategy for how to make it work. And they can get convoluted. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't always work. And they don't always work, and then you come up with another one. So I have a feeling you need the, dementia's per the demented person's signature. <laughs> oh, I no. think that's no. the tricky part. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, and ideally, um, and this is in an ideal world, you, you want to have the diagnoses early because there's, a, you know, there's years of an early stage, depending on how early in the disease they get a diagnosis where they are fully independent and I mean they might have some deficits but they can still think and make all their decisions and and they should they, they should be given that control and that autonomy for as long as possible so ideally the person will be making decisions based on how their future life is going to unfold earlier on 
themselves as much as possible. That's the ideal. And we'll, now, have, they may and we'll have had a POA. Yeah, a and so we'll have all the advanced directives and all the documents done. Now, they may, I mean, you may, you may have someone who in the early stages, you know, comes up with an agreement with their family on when they're not going to drive anymore. Like when this happens and this happens. And by the time they get there, they're going to be like, oh, get out of here, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, but you still, you still know that they did it, that they talked about it, that they made these decisions. Um, so they may forget, they may be in a different state of mind by the time some of those things happen. But it can give some relief to the family that at least they know that they, they did make that decision. Or they would have. I'm going to write a letter to my kids with all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> pull it oh out yeah, later. you know, if I ever get Alzheimer's, I'm going to be like the greatest patient for my family and friends. I'm going to. I'm going to know exactly what to do. I'm going to have the flashcards ready. I'm going to have everything labeled in my house. Oh. What if you don't remember to do that? <laughs> I will early on. Do it today. Did you see the movie? No, but I, I know yeah. the book and the story so well because we've, you know, in, yeah. in my field we've been talking about that. And she's from Boston, actually, mm -hmm. the, the author. And, and Annie Custer's yeah. book about her mother. And Annie's, Last yeah. Dance. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. Annie's great. Yeah. She talks about that. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the memory clinic and, and I've got a copy if anyone The advantages of, of being in well, the memory clinic um, at Dartmouth is multidisciplinary. So it's staffed by neurology, by neurologists. It's staffed by geriatric psychiatrists. And it also trains medical students, so it has residents in it. Um, they have a social worker there. They work with us, so they'll you know, refer people here to our services as well. Um, an advantage of it is that you get a multidisciplinary team. Um, of specialists, so your doctor, and they'll report back to your primary care physician. So if you really have a complicated medical life or a health life, it, it can be worthwhile. If you have a doctor, if you're very rural and your doctor doesn't deal with older adults or you know Alzheimer's that much, it may be better to have specialists around and, and get the testing and the latest testing. They do, are involved in research. Um, so that can be some of the benefits of that. It can be very complicated. It can be um, take a long time to get in. Um, change of personnel, if that's a big deal for you, can be a problem. You have one resident one time and another resident another time. Very busy. So those are some of the drawbacks of it. Um, some, I know some people who go to a local neuropsychologist and he just has his own private neuropsychology practice and they just go to him he's great they know him well he's not attached to anyone else and but he refers to the memory clinic and they refer to him but he's his own practice some people go to neurology clinics and some people just deal with their primary care and their primary care when something is a little bit outside of their realm will send them to a specialist so depending on what you want what what you want what you need <coughs> that help? yep Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It was you. very good to talk to you today. Thank you. I hope to see you here again for our many programs and possibly next month.